from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing an interview with Phil Christensen. After getting his Ph.D. in education at the University of Massachusetts, Phil worked at the Baha'i National Center as Secretary of the National Youth and Teaching Committees, then spent five years in Canada before going to Kenya in 1980 to develop and implement social and economic development projects funded by the U.S. Agency of International Development. He and his family have been in Africa ever since. Most of Phil's work in Africa has been on educational development projects. Currently, he is about to start up a project for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to enhance the use of radio for agricultural extension to small farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. Bill has used radio before in Africa for social and economic development projects. His first project in Kenya used radio to teach English to children in rural primary schools. I started the interview by asking Phil where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, not mm-hmm. too far from here. In Lexington in those days was a upper middle class, very white suburb. Um, it was okay to live there if you were black as, as long as you were rich enough. People kind of ignored you had, that you had the bad taste to be of a different background, uh, probably the same for for people of other religious backgrounds. So it was very, it was a, in retrospect, it was quite a, a bit of a ghetto, but it was a, a lovely town, good community. I went to Lexington Public High School. It was an excellent uh, uh, school. Um, I did spend one year abroad because my dad, in Switzerland, because my junior year of high school, uh, because my dad was teaching there. My dad taught his whole career at the Harvard Business School. So, but except for that year, uh, it was all in the Boston area. In those days, there were very few people who weren't wasps living in in Lexington, and and that was important to me uh, uh, later when I became a Baha'i because Mm. I had never had any exposure really Mm. to other races or religions or cultures or particularly socioeconomic groups. And Mm. I don't mean to overstate the case. Mm. A lot of good people, well intentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is a lot of those suburbs were effectively mm-hmm. white middle-class ghettos, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a wonderfully advantaged upbringing. And what, was, what were your interests growing up? I was never into uh, sports. I'm a complete klutz, always the last to be picked uh, for baseball or anything like that. I, I was... Uh, really interested in ideas and reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had to talk my way out of the children's book section uh, early on, third or fourth grade, so I could get up to the adult section and uh, start reading a lot of science fiction. I was a great science fiction fan mm-hmm. uh, at that time. And what was religious life like for you growing up? Um, really boring. My, I had a, a kind of a mongrel religious background. My grandfather was a Danish immigrant, 
And so, of course, my dad grew up in the Lutheran church, and he was effectively a lapsed Lutheran because the day that the minister said that not only were only Lutherans going to heaven, but only Lutherans in that particular subgroup, he felt that was a little narrow. And uh, my mom came, my, her family was Hicksite Quaker, which was a, a Quaker offshooter, uh, slightly variant of, of the Friends Society. Uh, my maternal grandmother, I have a picture of her as a 19-year-old woman homesteading in Oregon from Iowa. So there wasn't a Quaker meeting. So they joined the Unitarian Church. And so I grew up in, in the Unitarian Church. My only memories of, of Sunday school are trying to color work, are trying to color maps of the Holy Land with these cheap crayons that wouldn't leave a mark if you stepped on them. <laughs> um, not, I, I don't remember getting very much uh, of a spiritual sense. Um, that, that probably was my issue, not the church's. Mm-hmm. But in any case, by the time I was in high school, I was uh, agnostic. I wasn't mm-hmm. at all interested in religion. What happened after high school for you? I went off to college and continued my non-interest in, in religion. Actually ended up majoring in what Harvard called social relations, which was effectively psychology. Um, and one of the reasons I, I did that was I was trying to figure myself, as so many people do going into that field, trying to figure myself out. But I was quite sure that religion was fine for the masses, but not for a privileged uh, Harvard student like myself. So, and I actually, the first Baha'i I ever met uh, my freshman year, who I think you've interviewed, Greg Dahl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just uh, thought he was silly. I mean, he was in in the sense that he was inviting people to talks about the Baha'i faith. Why would anybody want to at at, at a you know an Ivy League university want to go to a talk on religion? We're all too smart for that. After you've got your undergraduate degree, what happened? Professionally, I went on to study education. By then, through a rather unusual series of circumstances, I had become a Baha'i. If this were uh, television, not radio, you could see me almost blush when I talk about Greg being silly, because he's not a silly person. No, no, he's not. He's a very serious guy. (laughs) Uh, He is. uh, uh, And a wonderful person. Well, one of the interviews uh, that I've heard on your show was with a guy named Charlie Cooper. Ah, yes. um, uh, Who effectively, as I remember it, took more than two years off and made his full-time job seeking truth. And that's, I've never heard of any story quite as cool as that, but that's not an uncommon story I found in the Baha'i community. A lot of people who find Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, seem to have been looking. Mm. I was the exact opposite. Hmm. Baha'u'llah had to tie me down, force feed me, and drag me kicking and screaming into this. So what happened was the... um, End of my sophomore year, I got food poisoning, uh, probably eating a chicken salad sandwich off a food cart uh, during the exam study period. As a result of that, developed a fairly rare medical condition called uh, Reiter's syndrome, R-E-I-T-E-R-S, okay. which has two or three symptoms. The, the major one is migratory arthritis. Now, in those days... In Europe, they had linked this to dysentery. That's what triggered it to, in my case. But the, the only link they knew in the United States was venereal disease. So I went in, and the doctor asked me the 
darndest questions. And I kept saying, you don't understand. It's my foot that hurts. My foot. And uh, we finally, but he finally diagnosed it as this. And, and as a result, I was uh, hospitalized that whole summer and um, uh, taking 18 aspirin a day for the pain. And mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't terrible, but it certainly wasn't life-threatening, but it was very uncomfortable. But what it did do was tie me down. My, my doctor told me later that in the 19th century, some of the greatest physicians had all had tuberculosis because they had had to then been, be in a sanitarium. And that kind of enforced stillness made me take stock of my life and effectively uh, required me to ask and answer the question, well, if you think you're such a smart guy, then why are you so unhappy? One of the things I did to pass the time was reread a series of books which I had truly loved as a child, uh, written by C.S. Lewis. Oh, yes. Uh, the wonderful Christian apologist. Um, uh, and, and his children's stories, of course, are called the Narnia series. They've now been made into movies, but the books are far better. And I reread them, and I realized that they were religious allegories. And I had never noticed that before, but I had always yearned to be a Narnia. And I, it was the first positive feeling I had ever had or, or that I had had in a long time about religion. And I thought, well, wow, I ought to think a little more of, about this. As soon as that happened, the, the arthritis eased off hmm. enough that I could be released from the infirmary and go up to New Hampshire with my family where we rented a cottage every year. Well, it turns out the people we had rent, rented the cottage from had joined the Baha'i faith a few years ago. I had no idea about this. And as soon as I got there, the arthritis kind of kicked in again, and I I literally really couldn't move around. The only thing I could do was talk to my family and talk to the the Hampsons. They were very interesting people. Ruth had actually been a state politician, Ruth Hampson, but all they wanted to talk about was the Baha'i faith. And so they gave me a book uh, which I think is out of print now, called "Reality of the Reality of Man." Now, were you resistant at this point? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I mean, I was, I, I, in there, this thing was niggling in the back of my mind that I really needed to, to uh, rethink my. But all of my instincts were that I was uh, would be stupid even to engage in a conversation about these things because it wasn't it, it wasn't intellectual it, it wasn't sophisticated uh, but Ruth gave me this book called uh, The Reality of Man which is a mostly a collection of talks given by the son of Baha'u'llah Abdu'l-Baha while he was in Europe in the United States after being released from prison about the nature of humanity but at the beginning there, there's a, a tablet a, passage, a set of passages from Baha'u'llah called The Words of Wisdom where he says the source of all love is love of God, the source of all wisdom is fear of God. And I read that, and I said, this is nonsense. And I used a much stronger word. I said, I love, and I don't believe in God, and I've, you know, I, I'm wise, I'm a college student, and I certainly don't fear God. I just put the book down and just said, this is just nonsense. Went to bed, woke up the next morning, and believed it. What? It was an absolutely non-rational conversion experience. I got up that morning, I went out to the porch, sat in this green rocking chair, picked up the book, 
again, read that passage and realized that I believed what it was saying, and I was absolutely terrified. I literally then got out of the rocking chair with my crutches and went back into the bedroom. I was going to hide under the bed. I just, I couldn't believe that this had happened to me. You know, Phil, this is, I'm sorry to interrupt your story, no, but this no, is really interesting because I just read an article in a magazine about how sleep induces the brain to think holistically. And therefore, the input just before sleep is taken in, but then the brain in sleep mode integrates everything. And somehow, I think that integration occurred while you were sleeping so that whatever barrier was there, the dots were connected for you when you woke up, and it was like, yeah. It, it, it could actually, I mean, it's that's certainly very true. I mean, I'm an extremely linear person, very analytical. The, you know, that's my strength. My, the intuitive side, the, the integrative, the holistic side has always been something I've had to work. So what you just said, Warren, is, is credible. Mm. The way I experienced it was being picked up by the scruff of my neck and, 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 and shaken. Right. So you went back to your room. Uh, so I, yeah, but I couldn't hide under the bed. There were these <laughs> camp beds. So I went back out. I picked up the book again, and I started to read the talks of Abdul Baha. And I was absolutely blown away. In these few discourses, Abdul Baha paints a paradigm, a picture of the nature of humanity that integrated all of the different psychological schools that I had been studying. So, for example, I'd studied Skinnerian psychology, human beings, as, as uh, we, can, we can learn about human learning by looking at how pigeons learn. Well, the Baha'i faith teaches that we do have an animal nature, but we have something more than that, our human soul. That brings in those Jungian ideas. And it, it, it all came together, and I thought, my goodness, you could be part of a religion and not check your mind at the door. Mm. This, in fact, this is a religion that's teaching me something. As soon as that happened, the arthritis eased up again. And I could, I remember standing outside of the, the Hampson's home, yearning to be invited inside because I, I just was hungry for more of this. And then... They would give me information, and some of it was attractive. Some of it I found scary, talks that just seemed awfully evangelical to me. And, and some of it was just out of left field. They gave me a copy of a magazine that's still published called World Order. There was a whole article about a universal auxiliary language, which, of course, I now know is one of the principles of the... That, well, what's this having to do with a... With this faith, I couldn't figure it all out, but I was now absolutely intrigued. So, But before you go on, Phil, what's interesting is your first reaction in the morning was, that, was fear. Can you talk about that a little bit? Why was, why was it fear initially after you realized well, this, this? Because I primarily, it wasn't even fear of God. It was fear of humiliation. I said, 
now other people are mm-hmm. going to judge me and treat me the way I have treated other people involved in a you've religion. Become, you've come, become one of these inferior people that are religious. Exactly. <laughs> I've become a religious. You know, later on, I, I, I was dating a, a young woman at the time. This is further down. She was the first person I told that I, I believed in God. It took me three hours to work up the courage and the conversation to say, and when I finally got those words out, she said, well, of course. And it turns out she was a very committed Christian and I had no idea. So uh, it was just fear of being treated the way I would. I, it was my own prejudices being and, and narrow-mindedness being reflected back to me. The idea of fearing God is something that is an interesting one and an important one in the Bible. That's something I've had to work on. I wish that my fear had been that noble, but it wasn't. The other thing was that I started to pray, which I hadn't done in years since I was counting light bulbs in the church in the middle of a sermon that had bored me. I basically prayed, well, Okay, God, I believe in you. Now the question is, is Baha'u'llah really who these people say he is? So would you please help me understand that? And actually the first books I read were were C.S. Lewis, some of C.S. Lewis's Christian books, Screwtape Letters in particular. Uh, And also there's a wonderful series of essays that he talks, I think he gave on the BBC radio called Mere Christianity. So in fact, my first spiritual guide was C.S. Lewis, who had opened my heart to the idea of God and a messenger. If you, if you read the Narnia stories, mm. I mean, they have limitations from his own culture in terms mm. of the approach to Islam and, and women. But, but really, the idea of, of a messenger of a, who keeps coming back is, is a very resonant with the Baha'i faith. But I said, well, I need to find out more about this. As soon as I made that internal commitment, the arthritis eased up again enough so that I was able to go back to school. So I checked into the dorm my junior year on the very first day. It was hot as blazes, summer, August in Boston. And at the, I, I called up Greg Dahl as soon as he had arrived and said, no, I, I, I actually saw him on the street. I hobbled up to him on my crutches and said, Greg, Greg, I I need to find out more about Baha'u'llah. The poor guy almost dropped dead of a heart attack. I suspect that on his list of people that might have been interested in the Baha'i faith, I was pretty far down. And, and Greg, for reasons known only to himself, gave me two books. He gave me Baha'i World Faith, which was a compilation of translations of both Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha's writings. And he gave me an introductory book called All Things Made New. Again, for some reason, I, it was just being guided and protected. I mean, I, I really believe as an educator that God is a wonderful teacher in the sense of adjusting the curriculum to the capacity of the student. And I was really in the special class, the special needs class here. So, you know, for some reason he guided me and I just picked up Baha'i World Faith and I started reading Baha'u'llah's writings. And I think I could understand about a fifth of it. But I couldn't get enough. There was this hunger in my soul. So I, I read that all week alone. None of my roommates were back. And then at, at, at the end of the week, after my roommates had come back, then I picked up John Farabee's book and started reading this introduction. 
And there was this weird stuff. I mean, Baha'is don't drink alcohol, and they, and you need your consent of your parents to be married. And if you die, then you're buried within a an hour of where you 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 die. And I mean, that's as weird as it gets, but it seemed pretty weird to me. And I called Greg up and I said, "What is this?" I die. And he started to explain, and in the middle of his explanation, I realized it didn't really matter. If Baha'u'llah said it, then that was good enough for me. So basically you had sort of recognized the station of Baha'u'llah as the word of God? I I had. I wouldn't even have been smart enough to put it in those words, but that was it. And my my exact words were, well, I I guess I'm ready to sign that card. By then, I had been to one Baha'i meeting, a fireside, an introductory meeting. That was the other part of the, my attraction because there was a wonderful family in Cambridge, Massachusetts called uh, Sam, or Sam and Mimi McClellan. Mimi was a, a gifted musician uh, studied under Paul Hindemith, and Sam was a child psychologist at Mass General. And they ran every Friday night, they had a fireside. And they also had a, in those days, it was called a deepening class. So I, we, I, I remember vividly, this was getting cold into the late fall, winter, and walking up Mass Ave to 95 Avon Hill Street, knocking on the door as a stranger. And I was so warmly welcomed. And in those days, I, I was highly insecure. I didn't yet know that, Abdu'l-Bahá had said that if a person has nine good qualities and one bad quality, you should concentrate on the good. And that even if a person has nine bad qualities and one good quality, you just should actually not even see the bad quality. But I felt that immediately. I felt a welcome, a warmth that I had, a community that I had never felt before. Uh, and then I walked in, and there were two rooms. There was a living room where the fireside was, and there was a kind of a dining room study, and there was a deepening class in there. And I asked Sam McClellan what was the difference, and he explained. I said, so I, so I couldn't go to the deepening class. He said, of course you could go to the You're welcome anywhere. It's just that we thought that since you're new, you might want an introduction. So I went into the fireside, was bored to death, talk on the history of the Bob, Baha'u'llah's forerunner. But again, the spirit was such. So it was the combination of the intellectual excitement, the community, and then this this kind of soul hunger. So then I I read some of the specific Baha'i laws. Then I realized if Baha'u'llah said it it was good enough. Mm. I really had accepted Baha'u'llah. I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. Mm. Oh, I, I said that I would sign the card. And uh, that was a Wednesday night. And uh, that Saturday I went back to Sam and Mimi's. I remember that day vividly. We had hot dogs and chicken noodle soup. Harvard was playing Dartmouth on the radio and football. Harvard lost. I signed my card. They gave me a prayer book. And I'm a fairly rule-driven person. So... All of a sudden, now I find out that there's a daily obligatory prayer, and and you can say one anytime, the long obligatory prayer, or there's a noonday prayer. In those days, we didn't have any guidance on what noonday meant. So being quite regulated, I figured, well, if it's noon, it's probably 12 to 12.01. I missed that. So I, I, I was trying to say this prayer. I didn't know how to do it. I said, Sam, what if I get this wrong? He said, so what? 
He said, you know, it's, Baha'u'llah expects you to do the best you can. So I went up, I said my, the long obligatory prayer for the first time. And that night we went to a talk, wonderful talk by Farooz Kazemzadeh, professor then at Yale on the, on the history of Islam. So I joined the Baha'i community because there are really st- two steps in becoming a Baha'i, as mm-hmm. you know. There's that moment that you describe better than I could when you accept Baha'u'llah as, the, as God's most recent manifestation as a teacher. And then there's signing the card, which is effectively enrolling in a Baha'i community. Mm-hmm. And about a week later, I had a regularly scheduled appointment with my doctor. And I came in and he examined me and he shook his head and he said, my goodness, he said, I believe this is, uh, it started to go into remission. Oh, sorry, forgot the most important thing. That day, that morning, I was, I was going through the prayer book page by page. I really am a linear person. And that morning, I got to the Tablet of Ahmad. So explain to our listeners what that is. Okay, the Tablet of Ahmad is, is a healing prayer uh, that is one of uh, three prayers in the Baha'i uh, scriptures that is has particular power, and it actually ends by saying that somebody says this prayer with absolute sincerity, God will dispel his sadness, solve his difficulties, and remove his afflictions. So I, I thought, well, I could use that. So I, I actually called up Sam. I said, Sam, what's this tablet of Amat? <laughs> and he and so he explained that. I said I could use that. I so that I said that morning. The, the Tablet of Ahmad for the first time, I actually started to memorize it. And that afternoon, I had a appointment with a regular scheduled appointment with my doctor. And he examined me, and he shook his head and smiled. He said, my goodness, he said, I do believe this is starting to go in, in remission. I literally walked into the, his office on crutches because I'd lost so much calcium in my joints that they were worried about joint damage. I walked out on a cane. It was snowing. And I, I was just at my 40th college reunion, and I went back. I re- there's a footbridge across the Charles River, and I remember standing on that footbridge 41 years ago with the snow blowing in my face, just thanking God because it was so clear that he had literally tied me down with this disease until I listened. I'm not proud that that's what had to happen to, to break through my, my intellectual barriers, my veils, to use the Baha'i metaphor. Mm. But I certainly am grateful. Did learning about the Baha'i faith and becoming a Baha'i faith in any way change your perspective in your education career? Absolutely. I, I, my <laughs> education career was on a fairly rapid decline as as my life got less and less conscious and organized in my sophomore year i was pretty much stopped going to class it's a standard sophomore slump and and so it it re-energized me and it gave me a focus and one of the things that i i decided i really wanted to study was the psychology of group dynamics and that's because in the baha'i writings and community, there are a set of techniques for uh, group problem solving called, that are called consultation. Those early days as a Baha'i was just one delightful, generally delightful surprise after another, one of which was discovering consultation. I was 
uh, asked to serve on uh, the Greenacre Council, a, a council to, for a, a Baha'i school, uh, summer programs uh, in, in Kittery, Maine. And I remember, and this was during the Vietnam War, where there were strikes on campuses, police. It was a really challenging time socially. And for people of my generation who could be called to, to fight in Vietnam, and we, we had a meeting and there was a discussion, a heated discussion, about whether the Baha'is should become more socially involved in the anti-war movement. And it, it, there, it was essentially between uh, an older, very experienced Baha'i who had a position of adv- advisory position, Baha'is called them auxiliary board members, Bob McLaughlin, who was an architect, and a young radical, bearded and everything, named Bob Walker. And these guys were just Mars and Venus, and I kept waiting for them to stop, start fighting. And instead... They gave their views. They listened to each other. Other people checked in. And I watched this group that would have disintegrated in any other context with which I was familiar come up with a brilliant approach that took the strengths from both perspectives. And I thought, wow, I want to know more about that. So I actually ended up writing an honors thesis at Harvard on consultation where I explained the theory and attributed it to Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i writings, uh, showed how it fit with the literature of group dynamics, and then designed an experiment to try to demonstrate that it would be uh, efficacious. And the readers included a guy named Robert Bales, who was quite a well-known figure. And I did very well on the thesis. They gave me a magna cum laude. Mm -hmm. And what the readers said was, this experiment is okay for a first effort, but it wasn't, you know, it, it... it needs a lot of work. But they said, the theory. They said, this is brilliant. <laughs> Fortunately, I hadn't <laughs> taken credit for it myself. Um, so it actually focused. I, you can, if you look at my Harvard transcript, mm. you can actually tell when I became a Baha'i by my grades and the choices I made. Now, can you give briefly the basic concepts or features of Baha'i consultation? I could try. A couple of them are, well, first, that it's carried out in a prayerful atmosphere. And that's a very important practically because in any relationship, including group dynamics, if the relationship is always on, only on the hum, peer-to-peer level, it's much easier to have fights. But if you bring in a higher power to which you're praying, uh, if you remind yourself that you're all there for some reason greater than your own ego and your own uh, showing off, that helps. The idea that you, one gives one's ideas to the group and then tries to let go of them. So your job is not to defend a position. Your job is to make a contribution to the group. And then every person has a responsibility to contribute and no person should dominate, and the group as a whole should come to a, a decision if ideally by consensus, in my experience, almost always by consensus, but unlike the Quakers, for example, when the Baha'i writings, Abdul Baha says, when God forbid you cannot achieve unanimity, then the majority decision is taken, and the minority then has the 
obligation to support the majority decision, to do everything possible to make it work, so that if it doesn't work, you know it was because it was the wrong decision, not because people were undercutting it. I've actually, one of the things I like to do is, uh, when I, with Baha'i youth classes, or actually adults too, I have an exercise, an old exercise from NASA about being lost on the moon where it's a problem-solving exercise and you can actually score it. And what I do is I divide people up and, and ask uh, each person to do it individually and then um, uh, groups to do it. And what you find in almost all groups except those that report that they did not consult well, not only is the group score higher the average, group score higher than the average individual score. In most groups, it's higher than the top individual score. The, the synergy of the group is more powerful than any individual. That's a fundamental principle of the Baha'i community, and consultation taps into it. So you graduated? Gra I graduated from Harvard. From, from Harvard. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I was effectively looking for my calling, and... I've always been interested in education. My father was a great teacher. He wasn't really interested in business, but he loved to, to teach. And, and at that time, there, was, uh, there is a Baha'i named Dwight Allen who had come from Stanford to the University of Massachusetts and started a revolution at the School of Education right here in this area of the world. And it had attracted people, including a lot of Baha'is, from all over the world. And Dwight was giving a fireside at the McClellans in Cambridge. And he gave a fascinating talk on education. And afterwards, I went up and said, gee, this is really interesting. I, I just wish that schools of education were better uh, because I'd love to go into the field, but I don't want to have to go to a school of education. They have such a bad rep. And he said, come and see what we're doing. So I did, and I drove, I, Greg Dahl lent me his Volvo, and I drove out from Cambridge to Amherst and looked at it and uh, actually then came here to the UMass School of Education for my graduate studies. Mm -hmm. And that decision was made specifically because uh, not only was I, did I feel that education was something that would work for me, but because the Baha'i teachings placed such an emphasis on the importance of education. What does it say? Well, I actually brought one of my favorite quotations. I didn't want to go up on it. Baha'u'llah writes, man is the supreme talisman. You know, a, a, a talisman is something that's in Greek that has the power to change things. So man, Baha'u'llah says, is the supreme talisman. Lack of a proper education hath, however, deprived him of that which he doth inherently possess. Regard man as a mine, rich in gems of inestimable value. Education alone can cause it to reveal its treasures and enable mankind to benefit therefrom. That image, that metaphor of each of us as a mine is so powerful. Uh, and I said, what greater life's work than playing a small part in mining the gems, the, the diamonds, the emeralds that, that lie within human souls. And that's really what attracted me to education. And then related to that was the Baha'i concept of pioneering, where Baha'u'llah uh, gives great merit to people 
who choose to leave their their place of birth and even move to a different country in order not only to serve the Baha'i community but better serve humanity. And I thought, well, my goodness, if you look at the third world, education is one of the greatest needs. So this is something that where I might I might actually be able to make a difference. How long were you at? I was I was there for three years. Uh I got my my doctorate, Uh uh, went to my doctorate, and Uh actually wrote letters to embassies of a whole bunch of countries. I I chose Africa to focus on simply because my second language was French, having studied in uh, Francophone Switzerland. I didn't really know anything about Africa at the time, and then I had uh, made a promise. I'd been asked to come to the National Baha'i Center to serve, and I had made a promise that I would do so after I completed my education. By then, I, I, I married a woman from Sunderland, Massachusetts, uh, uh, Deborah Hubbard. So we moved first to Wilmette, and I worked at the National Baha'i Center for two and a half years as secretary of something called the National Teaching Committee, which would coordinates the expansion of the Baha'i faith and, and then the National Youth Committee, which is what they really had wanted me to do, and then worked for five years at a technical college in Canada, but all the time looking for a way to get to Africa. And then finally in 1980, we were able to do that. And where did you go? We went to Kenya. Most of my time, not all, but most of my 30 years now, in almost 30 years in Africa, I've been working on effectively foreign aid projects, uh, mostly uh, U.S. government funded. And this first one was funded by USAID, and it brought me back to radio. It, it was a project to teach English by radio to children in rural primary schools. Uh, one of the strong emphasis in Baha'u'llah's writings is on justice and, 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 and equity. And one of the huge inequities of the world is not just access to education in the, develop, the global south, the developing world, but access to quality education. Something that worries me, the, the whole education for all movement sometimes just assumes that once you get kids in the door, that's good enough, but it's not. If they walk into the door and there's no teacher standing there, the teacher doesn't know his or her uh, subject content, uh, that raises other problems. And part of the problem in Kenya was that kids came and learned in their mother tongue for three years and then switched to English as a medium of instruction, which is actually a reasonable language policy, but when the teacher couldn't speak English very well. So we developed daily radio programs using Mm -hmm. a method that's now called interactive radio instruction, daily half-hour radio programs that basically worked with the teacher and printed materials, and we wiped out the difference between urban and rural schools, and we got achievement gains equivalent to what they were getting in the States in those days with computer-assisted instruction, but because it's radio, the cost was less than a dollar per child per year. Now, you said you'd been radio before. When was that? Uh, while I was at college, uh, I worked at a commercial radio station, WHRBFM, which is located on the Harvard campus. It's run by students and ex-students, but it's a commercial station. So uh, that was my introduction to radio. So how long did you do this radio stint with the, this program? The, uh, in Kenya. Yeah. That, that was five years. Mm-hmm. We, we had a five-year project. Then uh, moved south to a country called Lesotho, which is 
one of only two countries in the world. Here's a trivia question for your audience. What, what, what are the only two countries in the world that are completely surrounded by another country? One mm. is Lesotho, surrounded by South Africa. The other is Vatican City. <laughs> um, well, we actually introduced the radio methodology. There was a whole basic education reform project there, did similar work then in Swaziland and in Namibia. And by then it was uh, 1996 and democratic elections had taken place in South Africa. And I, I became very intrigued with the challenges and opportunities in South Africa because it's effectively was then and is still a new post-colonial country. Now countries are beginning to celebrate 50 years of independence. And part of the problem is that the promise of, of quality education for the masses has been broken. What's happened is the color of the elite has changed from white to black, but you still have to be rich and advantaged to get a good education, as was the case when I grew up I mean, in Lexington as opposed to Roxbury, for example. And so I, I really wanted to make a contribution and still want to make a contribution in South Africa to a new attempt to provide mass quality. So we've been uh, permanently, uh, God willing, in South Africa since 1996, although I haven't been working directly in basic education projects. I've just finished a project with ch in child labor and education and am about to start a project in uh, actually agricultural extension by radio. Now, have all these been U.S.-funded initiatives? Yes, the initial ones. I did take a break in the uh, late 1990s and became a dot-commer and then a dot-bomber. I'm very proud to be one of the first dot-bombers in South Africa. We set up a, a business with some private and World Bank funding to use uh, the Internet to try to help uh, disadvantaged South African students prepare for the high school leaving examination, which is high stakes on steroids. You, if you don't pass it, you don't have a effectively don't have a high school diploma. Call them a trick, and that was very successful technically, but eventually didn't work as a business. So then the next project I did, I did some work in Ethiopia on a basic education reform project. Those were all USAID, which is the core foreign aid agency. Last year I finished a four-year project that was actually funded by the U.S. Department of Labor. I had no mm. idea that the U.S. Department of Labor funded international. foreign international mm. development, but they've since the mid-90s have been uh, funding uh, projects to fight child labor, initially uh, entirely through the International Labor Organization, the ILO, but, but then they started funding directly projects to link that fight with education. So our project was working in five southern African countries, South Africa, Lesotho, Swaziland, Namibia, uh, and Botswana, to get not only to get kids away from child labor, either withdraw them or prevent them, but get them back into school and keep them in school because mm -hmm. a lot of those kids have been traumatized. So that was funded by the U.S. Department of Labor. The project that we've been planning for, for the last eight months and hope to start in June that project uh, is going to be funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So that'll be the first project I've worked on that was not government-funded but privately funded. And what's that project? The Gates Foundation is working now for several years in agricultural development and microfinance. And on the agriculture side, one of the things they're trying to do is 
reinvent the uh, agricultural extension system? How do you get the knowledge that farmers need to them? But equally important, how do you involve farmers in the dialogue? Back to the Baha'i idea of consultation, you see, that uh, no, there's no, I mean, there is a place for expertise. Consultation recognizes that. But no one person has all the answers. And the traditional model of extension, as the traditional model of schooling, assumes a one-way process. Mm. So what, what the Gates Foundation wants to see is an agricultural extension system that is, well, it first actually reaches the farmers, because right now, they're not enough extension officers. 80% of them are men, and they don't talk very effectively to women. Uh, they don't have via transportation. There are all sorts of problems preventing it. But even when the messages go out, they're not always the right messages. And there's no attempt to find out what the farmers themselves have to say. So the Gates Foundation has been looking at ways around that. And one of the things they want to see is whether radio now enhanced by other ICTs, information community and communications technologies, particularly cell phones, which is, interestingly enough are becoming more and more common in the most rural parts of Africa. Mm. Whether that, that system, which is, can be an interactive two-way system, whether that can be used to, to create a dialogue really, between content generators such as universities, ministries, research stations, and the farmers themselves. And so we're looking at radio-enhanced agricultural extension. And the vision is that in 10 years, could we have 80% of the small farmers in Africa, we're talking $2 a day, a couple of acres or, or more or less, uh, we're talking the estimates range from 60 million to 300 million, but say 150 million people. Most Africans are farmers. Could we use radio to help 80% of them improve their livelihoods, improve their prospects? One of the core indicators for the entire Gates agricultural program is a reduction in child malnutrition under five. Could mm -hmm. we really make a difference? And what the Gates Foundation has agreed to do is fund the first three years to see if we can develop some workable prototypes. So you're developing the programs now? Well, yeah, actually, we're, we're not going to ourselves develop the programs. We're going to try to work with the content, we call them knowledge partners, and with the radio stations themselves, the the public broadcasters, the private national broadcasters, which is a growing and new segment in Africa. It's broadcasting has traditionally been extremely regulated. In my day in Kenya, it was the voice of Kenya. That was the only radio that was allowed. Now there's a whole lot of private stations and community radio stations, mm -hmm. the equivalent of this station. Um, so we want, we want to create the capacity in all of those stations to take messages and turn them into vibrant, interactive programming and programming that has an impact. Because one of the things we found is that there's an expression in education, uh, spray and pray. The professor stands up, sprays out her wisdom and prays that the class gets something and prays harder that they actually do something. Well, that's, we saw the radio equivalent of that. You, you send out a program, you don't even know whether people are listening or not. 
So we're actually talking, for example, about creating a very simple research desk, a research capacity at each radio station from the most humble community station in a rural area right up to the national broadcaster just to make sure that there, you have feedback loops so that every time a program goes out, you know whether you've hit the mark or not, mm. that kind of thing. So, so you've got some outreach you have to do. Too. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and a lot of our strategy is to try to figure out how to do that. One of the interesting things about and impressive, there are a lot of impressive things about the Gates Foundation. One of it is, one of those things, I believe, is that they are truly committed to sustainability and scalability. So much of development assistance is uh, one shot, once off. And uh, people talk the talk about uh, sustainability, but there's really no commitment to it. Gates Foundation doesn't even want to look at an idea unless it is sustainable. So. I mean, we, we might support the development of some programs, but the reason we're not doing that ourselves is that wouldn't be sustainable. But what happens when the external funding ends? But if we build capacity within African institutions and African professionals, then that will carry on of its, on its own accord. Is there something you haven't done yet that you would like to do? <laughs> sure. On what dimension? Person, you know, religiously, personally, professionally, whatever, whatever dimension. Well, it actually. I'll, I'll tell you what I've been thinking about this week. I've just met my grand, my new granddaughter. I've become recently a grandfather. We've got a grandson, a granddaughter. I've gone back to my fortieth college reunion. I've been thinking a lot about where I am in life, and it goes back to how I became a Baha'i. The, the short answer to your question is, I want to learn to really love God. That's my focus right now because I realize it's so much, even though it was my heart that pulled me into the Baha'i community against everything that I had been taught and thought, what's always excited me about the Baha'i faith is the intellectual excitement. And that's really powerful. But Baha'u'llah came to do more than just train our intellects. He came to, 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 to capture our hearts. And I've begun to think a lot about the things that we do for love as opposed to duty or analytical understanding. And so I don't know whether that makes any sense to you as an mm -hmm. answer, but, but I, I would really, I'm really looking to create more balance in my life and to tap back into some of those feelings that I had as a very new Baha'i uh, that captures my heart as well as my head. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Warren, and thank you for these programs. They're, it's so interesting to hear people's stories. Yeah, I, I never get tired of hearing them. <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Phil Christensen. An educator who has spent nearly 30 years in Africa implementing various educational development projects and is currently about to start up a project for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to enhance the use of radio for agricultural extension to small farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
They stood up on the mountain top and shouted out with tears in his eyes.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.